This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. And hello as well to everybody listening to this in the future as a podcast <gasps> from the past. Creepy way to start the show, Thomas. Great Scott. A bit of time travel work Ooh. happening there. Did you like that? Hey, before we go any further, a big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of music and fairly amazing conversation there on Maps. Phoebe played back her conversation she did with Kim Gordon last week. Um, pretty amazing stuff that you get to hear on Triple R content made and, you know, delivered by Triple R presenters. And, you know, while we're on this bandwagon, let's mention last night... Henry Rollins was here in the studio talking to Jonathan Alley and Josh, you were even there live in the audience to, to, to witness that. Yeah, it was fantastic. Incredible stuff. There, I mean, just one of the many reasons why you should subscribe to Triple R. And in fact, if you have subscribed, you do still have until 5pm uh, Wednesday the 29th of September to pay up your subscription and be in the running for all the prizes. So, you know, those two events alone, I reckon, makes a year's subscription worth your while, not to mention all the incredible programming on this station. And if you're into films, I reckon our show is probably one that's one you might like listening to as well. So sh- show your support to the station, help us out, make sure you're on those pledges. Or if you didn't get to subscribe, do it now. Okay, let's get on to our show. My name is Thomas Caldwell, and I'm joined tonight by my co-hosts, Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. And for the last oh. time, like seriously, this will be it, Josh Nelson. Damn it, tears are starting at <laughs> six minutes already. in. How yes. are you going, jo- I'm sorry we had to fire you, but... Um... <laughs> We've really appreciated your time at the company. The, the policy change in respect to not wearing pants in the studio is really, really upsetting. It just got awkward for all of us. No pants Mondays must come to an end. <laughs> I, look, I, I mean, by means of explanation, Josh, you, you, you are moving overseas. You are heading off. You've got a green card. You're going to the States. I'm just revealing your personal life here. <laughs> it's like for those of you and who you can don't call know. Josh. Yeah. <laughs> and Josh's new social security number is... Clear. Yeah. So, um, look, we'll talk more about this at the end, but let's just put on a damn fine show. In the meantime, we're going to talk some films. Now, on tonight's show, we will be discussing a sequel, a remake, and a based-on-a-true-story film. Don't turn off. It's okay. I think the conversation is <laughs> going to be interesting, <laughs> and I think these films are all worth talking about in some regard. The sequel is Blair Witch, a follow-up to the 1999 found-footage horror film The Blair Witch Project. The remake is Pete's Dragon, a live-action version of the 1977 musical film. And the based-on-a-true-story film is the first one we're going to be talking about. That's Sully. It's the new film directed by Clint Eastwood. It's his 35th film as director after he first Slacker. moved... Slacker! Slacker! <laughs> he done 35. And, look, he's been directing now for 45 years, so I don't know what he's been doing... What was he doing in those other 10 years? On those Come off on. years, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes he takes two years to make a film oh, rather than God. one. The film is based on a memoir written by pilot Captain Chesley Sullenberger and author Jeffrey Zaslow titled Highest Duty, My Search for What Really Matters. The focus is on what happened on the 15th of January 2009 when Sullenberger, nicknamed Sully and played by Tom Hanks in the film, was piloting a commercial passenger flight from LaGuardia Airport in New York City and had to make an emergency water landing on the Hudson River shortly after takeoff. The film is non-linear 
It shows events more than once from different perspectives. It depicts Sully's anxieties and nightmares, and as well as depicting the actual emergency landing, the film primarily is about what happened afterwards. The film takes the audience through the National Transportation Safety Board's investigation into the incident, raising the question that Sully's actions may have been reckless, as well as exploring the adverse effect both the investigation and the media attention had on Sully, who is shown to be a very a man very reluctant to embrace the spotlight um, and all the claims that he is a hero. Right, who would like to comment on Sully first? I, I mean, interesting to know, this is a film that I don't think any of us were too enthusiastic about seeing, and it did come out, like, over a week ago, but it's had some really strong word of mouth and reviews, which is why we decided to do it tonight. It's probably worth mentioning, because I, I didn't realise this watching the film, it was only when I sort of read back afterwards that the the prosecutor prosecu- prosecutorial is that even a word? That'll do, yeah. It is now. Good. Let's do it. Um, you can take that word with you on your travels. I'll pass it on to George W. Bush, his <laughs> selection of words, yeah. Um, that aspect of it, the so it's very much a kind of trial-based narrative, I guess. The whole thing is moving towards an investigation, um, which isn't based on fact. And I think that Sully himself, if I may call him Sully, I feel that I can after this film. Well, I'm not um, going to say um, Sullenberger. Mr. Sullenberger. I, I feel that he deserves that respect from me, like Mr. Sullenberger. <laughs> he's, he's a Sully. 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 He's a, we're Australian. So, so hang on, so what's he said about the trial? Is he had, like, in the film? The, the names of the prosecutors were changed yep. because he said that does not reflect the relationship or the approach or the attitude of those people. So that was very much a uh, narrative Invention. Invention. Yep. Yeah. Um, so there is this quite... Uh, I mean, it is kind of the propulsion, I think, of the story does come, in a sense, from the kind of uh, aggression of this investigation against him. And he, he really, he really I'm going to say it, he really packed a bong for the real-life people that were involved in that investigation. Yeah. And I- said that this is, this is a kind of, you know, he wasn't upset about it, but I think it was Tom Hanks in an interview who came out and said, yeah, no, it wasn't. That wasn't the case. This is about... That's more to do with the movie, but the real-life prosecutors weren't they weren't gunning for him like they were in the film. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about... I mean, we, we've talked about historical revision on previous shows, and I've been a part of this show for a number of years now. <laughs> um, and I, and I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that element going in, mm. so I, I took it at face value to, yes, my, so dis- to, to my discredit. And I think I, I, I've actually changed my opinion a little bit in light of that revelation because it's not a, not a minor point. I mean, it is really the sort of the the glue that holds this film together dramatically is this idea of Sully, the hero, being persecuted by an administration. And I think that in many ways ties into Eastwood's... Eastwood's cin- politics. His politics Absolutely. and also his cinematic persona. I mean, this is, it feels like his Western persona. And, you know, the thing about those, post, those post-Leone Westerns, the urban Westerns, the Dirty Harry, it was always this idea of the individual versus the system. And, and social change can only come through individual action and heroism is born from that figure. So I think it very much reflects uh, Eastwood's politics in that regard. And I guess this is one of the downsides of auteur theory. And I'm, I'm someone who loves, has a sort of nostalgia for auteur theory. But once you are aware of a director's politics or personal life and Eastwood certainly is quite outspoken politically and you know I think many of us are the image of him talking to an empty chair we actually have an empty chair where yeah, Cerise usually sits in the studio could, tonight as a sign of respect and yeah. talk to that empty chair it's hard not to read the film's politically I, don't, I think that's in some ways what made American Sniper an interesting film and a more com- conflicted film than I think a lot of critics gave the film credit for I don't think it's as clear cut extreme Republican I think there's 
there's a conflict at the heart of Eastwood in terms of violence. I mean, that's maybe a separate issue, but I think in some ways that that's what makes this film interesting and also disappointing because I don't think it necessarily needed that aspect. I think focusing on Hank's performance and the effect of the the flight and what he's gone through is really, for me, dramatically what's the strongest element of this film. And Hanks, look, Hanks has become one of these people people love to hate on. I think he's an extraordinary actor. There are moments in this film where he was remarkable, just as he is in those final moments of Captain Phillips, I think a largely underrated film as well. And that's really what I gravitated towards in this film. Yes, I don't know where to begin with addressing quite a few points that you both have raised. No, 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 in a good way. I mean, there's a lot to talk about this film. I'll say from the outset, this will probably be one of my films of the year. I don't think you're alone with that. This has gotten really quite... I mean, just in the circle of critics that I kind of follow and listen to, this is getting pretty rousing. I thought it was stunning. And what what I found so... It was the emotional intensity of the moment I thought the film captured beautifully. Like, it's not not really a spectacle film. The, the, The film really put you in the minds of these two very professional men piloting the plane it was also the co-pilot played by um Aaron Eckhart, Aaron Eckhart who, who definitely gets the credit he deserves yeah. that, that, that that person um you know that the, the flight crew and the passengers you really felt the kind of moment by moment emotional intensity of their realization of what was going on and there, I, I was almost choking back tears at some of the d- dramatic power of of this of this stuff I I was really impressed with how I mean Eastwood if nothing else is a superb crafts of of you know this kind of methodical very almost old-fashioned filmmaking and that really worked for me and i was so impressed with how and he's not someone known for non-linear stories or you know depicting someone subconscious or or depicting something more than once from the same perspective these are sort of not the kind of things that eastwood traditionally does and i thought he handled the material beautifully now the question of how he depicted the the trial is something I've really wrestled with. And when the film first began and hadn't quite won me over just yet, I was scribbling down, this is this is very much Eastwood's thing of... It's a very old-fashioned, sort of old manny. I don't believe in computer simulations and your, uh, you know, your, your algori- al- oh, no. algorithms. Algorithms, thank you. Um, you know, it's all about experience and old-timey, in, you know... In intuition, all that sort of stuff, which Man is a sentiment. Yeah. yeah, which is a sentiment he expressed in the last film he appeared in as an actor, a, a pretty ordinary film called Trouble with the Curve, which is a direct response to Moneyball. So, you know, Moneyball was a film all about the um, the guys who came up with the mathematical yeah. formula to pick the best baseball team. Trouble with the Curve, it's a nothing stupid film where Eastwood plays an old school baseball coach yeah. who, who, you know, the, the, who takes on that kind of mathematical formula of building a team. And when you do that, you get douchebags who look good on paper, but they're horrible people. And that, he finds the real like guy. That sounds like an awful film. Yeah. I it's have awful. To say, and it passed me by completely. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the first time I'm usually on board with Eastwood, and that's the first film that really turned me off him. And I think I was one of these people who had quite a knee-jerk reaction to American Sniper. And on reflection, I think it's a far more complex film because I think Eastwood's a complex character. He doesn't, and he's never fitted neatly into any category. I mean, he calls himself a libertarian, which is kind of right-wing without the conservative stuff, but I think even that's too simplistic. I think he's one of these guys who takes issues and themes on a case-by-case basis, which drives both extremes of politics crazy. I mean, people love to try to pigeonhole him, and he just defies that. I think there's a bit of an old-fashioned thing to him, but um, but the idea of the way the trials represented them being out to get Sully, it made sense dramatically. I could see that why they did that. I am one of these people who's very reluctant to chastise a film because it's not being realistic. Like, yeah, totally. 
But mind you, at the same time, I saw Snowden yesterday. Snowden, the Oliver Stone film, begins with a title card that tells you explicitly at the start, this is a dramatisation. And I thought, I don't think I've seen a film do that at the very start in recent memory. And that actually feels a little bit more ethical, telling you right up front, remember, this is my version of events. You shouldn't take it as read. Um, so, yeah, it, it does have that, you know, Sully's the hero because he was intuitive and he has experience. But at the same time, I sort of felt like, well, the resolution of the film, the way the trial resolved, was it came to the, the end result that it should have had. So in, in its own way, the film actually shows us that the, this trial and this, this organisation did the correct job. They challenged him, as they should have, and the results turned out to prove to us that what he did was incredibly amazing and the right thing to do. So the end result is still sort of the same. So, But that has a political connotation because it's, it gets there not through the, the bureaucracy doing its job, it comes there through the individual proving to the bureaucracy that they don't know how to do their jobs and only when he sort of beats them at, the, at their game. And, and, you know, and so that's a good counterpoint. It's a, co- it's a courtroom drama. And, and, yeah. I, mean, the, I guess the only criticism I had, because mm. I got swept up in the emotions of this film as well, was that the turnaround for the bureaucracy happens too quickly for me. There was almost that moment where they were going for him so hard and it was almost like it's this man against, or him and his co-part against the system. And then there's a moment where it's like, oh, wow, you know, this is not really giving anything away. I mean, you know, it's like, wow, you were right all along. And that for me, that moment, that change happens almost too easily or too neatly in some ways, um, which I, I guess is, is a, perhaps a product of him being hamstrung by the reality of what took place and his sort of revision on that take for mm. dramatic purposes. I, I haven't voiced an opinion yet. I'm really <laughs> embarrassed to admit that I, I admire Eastwood's craft. I know that he is one of the greats. I, I do not debate this at all. I'm not looking for a fight. He just generally leaves me cold. And it's not, not because of any criticism that i have it's just we just we just miss each other i don't think he's that big a fan of my work for what it's <laughs> for what it's worth so fair cop his reviews of um, your superior book were yeah, well, really was, glowing yeah, well, he was kind i mean i obviously got him on a good day but <laughs> um yeah i mean i my you know my connection with him i guess is like the really early spaghetti western stuff yep. that's the stuff where i'm like go clint as a as a filmmaker i think he's very 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 gifted like you said i mean this is a master craftsman i really admire his skill set i admire his craft i can't think of a film in the last couple of decades from him that i've connected with and this is the same it's like i really admire that what it's doing and how it's doing it and and to me the 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 relationship between the fact and the and the the liberties that he took were more of a they weren't a criticism it was more of a kind of oh afterwards it's like oh I, i didn't know that and there's a thing i just yeah i can't i feel like i almost can't it's not fair for me to offer judgment on this film because i just don't have that connection into it and yeah. it, it, there's just I guess there's just some directors or some films that we're like that with and I it's kind of frustrating sure. in a way well, like I, I, I feel like I too, want yeah. to have a really strong yeah. opinion because the film really demands it and I think and and you know as I say critics that, that I admire you two at the top of the list have had really strong emotional even more than intellectual responses to this film so I kind of feel like I feel a little bit left out like I, I <laughs> and it's it's not you Clint it's me 
I, I think just, well, as a bit of a sideline or a backtrack, I mentioned Hanks, and Hanks really is at the forefront of this film performance-wise, yeah. but Eckhart, I think, is really impressive. Yep. But I think... Laura Linney. Oh, I, that's yeah, right, yeah. I wanted sorry. to say, <laughs> shout-out to Laura Linney and Anna yep. Gunn. It's really nice to see Anna Gunn moving, and I know she's in a film soon called Equity, which releases soon. It's nice to see her moving beyond TV, because I think she was such a powerful force on the TV screen in Breaking Bad. It's nice she's to see her. integral to what break, yeah, to Absolutely, Breaking, yeah. and it's really nice to see. And, and she, she holds her own absolutely in this film. Yeah. One criticism I've heard it's, is Laura Linney is very much this person who is in all these scenes detached from everybody else on the end of, end of the phone. But I, I like that dynamic because it was acknowledging that he's, what, what his wife was going through at the time is so detached from this all and, and he wasn't allowed to go home because he was caught up in this media circus and this investigation. And, and I found those phone calls really powerful as these two people who have their own very different version of shock they're going through at what has just happened and they can only connect over the phone. I, I like that technique of keeping them separate. I found that very moving. Well, yeah, it's the, and it's the conflict of institutions. The, f- the, f- the institution of the family, that yeah. kind of, you know, very American sort of centrist idea, and the bureaucracy that's intervening in, 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 getting, in, in allowing Sally to return to that kind of the family yoke. Yeah, it's all there. I think it's more kind of old manny politics <laughs> than necessarily conservative politics. Yeah. Um, look, I think this is yeah, the best thing Eastwood's a- done in a decade. That I think really seems to be such a strong consensus. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Sully, there you go. Took us all by surprise. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Blair Witch is the second sequel to 1999's The Blair Witch Project, one of the most influential and significant films ever made to embrace the found footage concept, where what the audience is watching is meant to be real-life film footage made by the people we are seeing in the film. In the case of The Blair Witch Project, the footage was shot by three student filmmakers who disappeared while making a documentary about the legend of The Blair Witch. The idea behind this new film is that the younger brother of Heather from the original film is going back into the mysterious Maryland woods in the hope that after all these years he'll find out what happened to his sister. Travelling with him is a film student making a documentary about his search, two friends and two locals who had recently found more footage. The new Blair Witch film is directed by Adam Wingard and written by Simon Barrett, who both made previous horror films together, The Guest in 2014 and Your Next in 2011. It's a more traditional sequel to the original film than Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2, which came out in 2000, in the sense that this new film aims to adopt the same mythology, narrative and found footage aesthetic. Whether it succeeds in doing so or whether it even should have attempted to do so in the first place is another set of questions and I have a funny feeling those questions and many more will be addressed in a moment. Hang on to your seats. There is some fury in the studio. Let's have a massive fight. Look, I want to start on a more positive note and say... (laughs) Good work. This film is 89 minutes long. That's not even an hour and a half. And I I, I think that that's to be admired. And that's that's me done. That should have been on the poster. It's 89 minutes long. I appreciate that this film was short. I really valued that. It didn't feel short to me. Um, look, <laughs> I've started with a snark. So, so you guys are way not fans of yeah, look, we, nothing redeeming at all? I would like to hear your thoughts because I know that I, my sense in this room that there's a lot of energy and pain. Well, do you, do you mean to start um, with? Because yeah, I, look, I think that's you, a good idea, yeah, Thomas. You, yeah. you I, a more positive okay. place, so I would really like to hear your thoughts. I came out of this film overall enjoying it with massive reservations and thinking there was a number of things done very, very poorly. I mean, I'll quickly mention those poor things and I'm sure you guys will expand on that. <laughs> the found footage aesthetic 
begin this is, is nonsense. It, it's sort of done as a performance. It's it's, it's too much exposition and too it, the t- technology they use in the film and constantly justify using it results in very traditional editing styles, including shot reverse shots. So that really nice sense that we are literally watching two cameras filming everything at sort of mid shots you got in the original film is is gone so fast in this film. It, it's really performative, which is what the found footage genre fell into so quickly. I think very few films have actually captured the real, the grit of that original film. Um, the, there's some terrible stuff with the kind of city folk being yokels who are sort of picked on. I didn't like the characterizations at all. Oh, but this is my big... I'm look, sorry, I'm looking at the notes I scribbled down when I watched the this film. Is the, this is the positive review, This is the positive too. review. <laughs> yeah, wow. The, the biggest... Well, I'll, yeah, I'm going to say one more criticism and then I'll get to what yeah, I liked. Cool. The, the big criticism I had is that it's so heavily reliant on jump scares, which I've come to really hate. So the jump scare is when something just suddenly flashes in front of the camera and makes a loud noise. And in this film, it's other characters suddenly appearing to say, hey, I'm here and you didn't notice me standing here five seconds ago. But characters sort of appear from nowhere and and the jump scare has the finesse and the 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 skill of that bully at school who used to clap his hands in front of your face and then say who made you flinch because that's the only way you can respond when something loud happens right in front of your face and i've come to hate the jump scare it's lazy boring dull filmmaking amen on the plus side I like the way they expanded and evolved the mythology in this film. They could have done the same old. I think they took it into a... Um, I like the way it unraveled more, and I thought the final 20 minutes was a lot more inventive and intense. There's a sequence involving a tunnel that I almost felt physically ill watching, and I thought the final big sequence and the very s- slight reveals had a bigger impact on me. I-, I came out sort of trembling and thinking, that was fun for a film I overall think dropped the ball in a major, major way. I, I wrote a book on found footage horror films, so I've written like a 10,000-word chapter on this. You should have taken the lead so, on this, actually. No, I'm, I'm no, and like, I'm actually, okay, no, I I'm actually, I don't, I don't say that to pull, pull rank or anything. If anything, it's quite the opposite because I really want to frame what I say in the sense that I have a professional investment in found footage horror. Yep. Like, I have money coming in <laughs> through what I know about found footage horror. Um, and partially I keep thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't be so hard on this film for not being as radical as that first one. And then I think, you know what? They decided to call it Blair Witch. They decided... This was originally called The Woods. There was a big... Was it Comic-Con where they announced this is the new Blair Witch film? So there's a conscious decision to ride those coattails. So as far as I'm concerned, it's open slather. Um, I don't... I will not shut up once I start on this film. I was furious. I saw... Um, the first public screening of this film in Melbourne and it was a lunchtime screening, an early in the day screening and uh, half the audience walked out and I think the half of us that were left who bonded, um, hi hi to Erica and Matt if you're listening. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was. I I wish that I walked out and I think that's the only film this year that I can honestly say that about. Um, But maybe, maybe the real Blair Witch is the friends that we made along the way. That's, Josh. that's another tagline that could yeah. have been on the poster. Well, so, so, so what is it that really angered you about this? I, I have a very long list. I, I really I, I re, I really resented the dumbing down of the mythology and I'm not the kind of person that normally invests in that. They changed the whole... The whole standing in the corner of the room mythology is, is radically changed. They just change it completely. Um, so that's in a very, very dumb way. Okay, um, so I agree with you on that. And I, I yeah. just think it, it's, it was I explained, think, which was really boring. I, I have a very complex relationship to that first film because I think it is a masterpiece, and I think it's ideologically broken, yep. and that's very difficult for me to get my head around. And I've done a lot of research and a lot of thinking. The, the first film is dismissed, and it, it, you know, it virtually ruined the careers of everybody involved in it. None of those people, except for maybe Joshua Leonard. 
um, who, who went out to do a lot of mumblecore stuff. He was in Hump Day. But Heather grows, uh, Heather Donahue grows medicinal ma- marijuana. And Michael, whose name I've forgotten, I think he ended up going back to being a furniture removalist. Um, you know, this did, well, this wasn't the great launch pad career-wise for any of the people involved in the first one. It was extraordinary filmmaking. I mean, American Sanchez called it method of filmmaking. They had 100 hours of footage to edit down to make that film. This wasn't just a bunch of kids in the woods filming each other without a director. This was, this was precision experimental filmmaking aside from the genre stuff and i think it and i think that's always subjective i mean i i personally find the first film a hugely 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 disturbing horror film that last shot is just one of my favorite shots in any film final shots i think it's extraordinary i resented the um the skinny jeans and the crop tops i don't know how you have a sense of cabin fever and isolation when you have six characters i don't want to see the witch I don't want to see a crappy CG witch. I want you to do interesting things with the technology. And I think both the second film gets slagged off a lot, but I think it's actually dated quite well because it does a lot. Both the first film and the second film do really interesting things with technology. So the first film, Heather very consciously talks about some, some footage being shot on film and some on video. And the relationship between that is really important. This film does nothing with technology. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm chomping. <laughs> at the, I'm chomping at the bit to to jump in because I think there's a, a lot of interesting stuff in there. I was probably to my discredit one of those people who may have dismissed the original film at the time. I thought it was mildly inventive, but it didn't sweep me up in the way that it swept a lot of other people up. And I rewatched it this week, and I am so wrong. I think this is a really the, the original film. I think is a really strong film. In fact, I think it holds up better now. So do I. In light of the sixteen years of found footage films that we've had since then, and for some of the reasons you just picked up on, the characterization is so raw. It's so real. It's hard not to believe that they're actually those characters, not actors pretending to be characters. The the the, the conflict the stylistic conflict and the formal conflict in that film between the the videotape and and the film this film has a potential to do it because the yokel one of the yokels has a like an old dv camera and one of them is doing in the kind of the digital they do nothing with that i think for me this film and look so maybe because i saw this film today i saw blair witch today maybe the film doesn't fare well in light of watching the original two days before and having such a, a strong reaction to that maybe it's because i don't dig on wingard style i did not like your next i do not understand the love for that film or the guest as much as i think it's a, a stylish film with a great soundtrack um i found the characterization in this film absent i i, I thought i was looking at a united colors of benetton catalog i didn't buy any of those uh, actors i found the plot contrivances really ridiculous and i found a trend in cinema probably the last six months that i've become aware of of escalating plot contrivances to provide a faux sense of drama as opposed to just doing a simple plot effectively and this this film does that it it creates things like suddenly there's these time distortions which make no sense and these type of contrivances become more and more frequent as the film goes along so by the time i got to that final 20 minutes you talk about thomas which i admit is some impressive filmmaking and claustrophobic filmmaking it did nothing for me because it had nothing up until that point to hook me into the terror of those final moments and i just felt angry i felt lost i I felt like this was a a missed opportunity and i felt i thought it was dumb i thought i I loathed the fact that it was kind of moronic basically i felt insulted by the film 
I mean, I, I kind of have a similar feeling. I mean, I don't have the same investment in the original, although I, I do agree the original is an astonishing film. I liked it at the time. I haven't revisited it since, but I think it's a extraordinary film, and I still think it's sad that the, the aesthetic that they captured in that first film never really got picked up by anybody else to nearly the, the same effect. I think my experience in this film is I very quickly abandoned any idea of it being the worthy successor. And so once I got over that and stopped looking for some kind of fidelity or respect to the original film, I just went with it as another as another disposable horror film. And that's how I, sort Which, of got, I allowed yeah. myself to get swept away over the last 20 minutes. And I've been thinking a lot about that. I think the ending that you guys are talking about, I saw that and I've gone blank on the name, but the tunnel thing um, yeah. was done by a really incredible Irish found footage film a couple of years ago that does that same tunnel thing but with a twist that I des- I can't remember the name of the film. I think it's called The Border or The Borderlands uh-huh. um, and I desperately want to give oh, the spoiler yeah. because yeah, what it does, it, 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 that also has a final climax in a tunnel and what it does I've never seen a film do before and it was genuinely terrifying. So I think it's one of the best found footage. I've completely forgotten the name well, of this film. Speaking of tunnel films, since it's my last show I can I can make outlandish comments like this. Yui Bowl, a filmmaker that I'm yeah, sure we all have it. lots Why of not? time for, made a film called The Tunnel a number of years ago and it, uh, that was quite, that's, I'm sure his post, probably his most remarkable film. It has some wonderful claustrophobic mm-hmm. cinematography and that's sort of the, I think they're the Coochie Tunnel I think it's a Vietnam War film, actually, from memory. Mm. Um, but it reminded me of that. Anyway, this is a sidetrack about tunnel films yeah. now. But look, that was effective. But for me, it didn't have the because it didn't have the anchor. Because I felt like I'd gone through so many contrivances that I wasn't on board. I didn't have that sense of the dramatic dread, the build towards the dread, even to the point where characters separate for for no apparent reason prior to entering into the the, the cabin. I, I was just I had my head in my hands for much of this film I have to admit. I think Heather, what Heather Donoghue did in that first film really is underrated that that famous close up the camera under her face while she's yeah. crying and giving that snake speech with the snot mm. we don't see women on film like that. She wasn't sexualized in that film there was no romantic any kind of relationship. She's kind of, she's not even frumpy she's just a normal person yeah. and she's crying and she's freaking out and she's snotty because that's what happens to human beings there's nothing of, the, I mean it's like I said, that original film I think is very, very difficult to ideologically champion simply for the fact, for me, that it punishes a woman for wanting to make a film. And I can't escape that. No matter how much I love that film, I always come back to the fact. And, and I've seen other films that these guys have made, and I don't think that they're particularly pr- progressive human beings in terms of their own personal politics. Well, I think there's They're not ethical. I mean, they put those actors through hell as well. Well, the actors, I mean, it was a kind of... They called it, um, yeah, this, this... Oh, is it productive masochism? Like there's, there, yeah, there's interesting discussions about it. The the kind of, I mean, certainly the actors that came out about it, they had their own, um, you know, they spoke a lot about it. I'm really rambling, but yeah, I just just losing that power of what Heather did and replacing that when her brother um, kind of reclaims her speech. There's a very famous yeah, speech that, that like she a plot gives, contrivance that and was I thought it was necessary. filthy. I thought it was just, I mean, it was a very overt reference to the first film, and it's like you've totally missed. I mean, I just the idea of a, a guy reclaiming a woman's iconic speech was just off. I just found the whole, th- and I just don't want to see the witch. Like you've missed the whole point of that first <laughs> film is that you don't know that there's a witch. I have a theory that I Josh like is the, the witch. Of the witch no, I really, I, I think that there's enough evidence in that first <laughs> film that Josh is the witch. I think it's really, and I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I don't want to see some crappy CG witch. It sounds like the consensus here is just rewatch the original film, which I would very much like to do. Actually, you're listening to Plato's Cave here on Three Triple R. 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Pete's Dragon is the latest remake by Walt Disney Pictures of one of their own films, in this case the 1977 musical that mixed live action and traditional 2D animation. This new film is a variation on the wild child trope, where a young person grows up isolated from human contact, often raised by wild animals. In the case of Pete's Dragon, the child is five-year-old Pete, who is left stranded after a car accident kills his parents. He is raised by a dragon who lives in the woods, whom he names Elliot. Six years later, Pete encounters civilization again when he is discovered by a forest ranger named Grace, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. However, all is not well as Pete's discovery triggers a renewed interest from the local logging community in finding Elliot, who has previously been regarded as a myth. Now, while some people act out of benevolence, such as Grace's father, played by Robert Redford, many do not. Pete's Dragon is directed and co-written by David Lowry, who is best known for his Bonnie and Clyde-esque 2013 crime drama Ain't Them Bodies Saints. It's a curious and quite a large step up from for this indie filmmaker to make a very big budget family film. How do we feel about How? Pete's Dragon? It's a Disney. You can tell it's a Disney film because the parents get killed in the first five minutes. <laughs> you know, it's actually the first three. I actually really appreciated how quickly this film struck the blow of the trauma. It really didn't milk it. I find that a lot of kids' films that hinge around a trauma, they really milk it. And I found this really upsetting. It's an upsetting start. It's extraordinary but it was shot in and too. it was out. Yeah, like it's a really amazing The way they start move on. Film. Yeah. Is it amazing in it's this film? It's very efficient, yeah. but it has yep. the emotional punch, but it doesn't mine it. It doesn't... It doesn't overdo it. I was, and it's suitable for young people, I yeah. think. Yes. Yep. I was extraordinarily impressed with how they handled that. David uh, Lowry, I've got to say, aside from anything else, you've got to Google this guy. He's got the most incredible moustache. I mean, I know that that shouldn't bias the way that we approach film on the show, but I'm just going to put that out there. Really, I mean, you're right. His indie background, I think, is really interesting. The DOP, and this is a beautiful looking film. I mean, I'm a huge, I, I love this film. I think it's like the best, one of the best kids films I've seen this year. Ditto. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to add my hat to that ringer. Yep. The DOP is a guy <laughs> called Bojan Bazelli, who uh, is a Montenegrin, uh, he does a lot of music videos. Um, but also primarily a cinematographer. He did Boxing Helena and a bunch of Abel Ferrara films. But Lowry was the editor on Upstream Colour. So this is like indie indie royalty yeah. stuff here. It's a really fascinating match for Disney. And I love it. I, I love how folksy this film is. And I know that that's a kind of often a derogatory word, but I loved... It reminded me a lot of those... Um, I don't know if you guys grew up with them, but The Wonderful World of Disney. Totally. It just it just made me... I mean, I, I, I liked the original when I was a kid. I just adored this film. I loved... You know, the opening credits are like wood carvings. Beautiful. I think there's something quite... F- oh, my God. <laughs> Fitting about this being the final film because it, it reminded me of the film's... <laughs> <laughs> Josh is very moved. Oh, do you mean to jump in? Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, this is a gorgeous film. I, I think the characterisation is incredibly strong. I love how Robert Redford is becoming a lovable old-timey man who offers kindness and wisdom. And really, the ideology of this film I found really fulfilling and impressive because it's a, it's a logging community, but the film differentiates between people who do this as a living and people who are perhaps being a bit exploitative and lazy with going too far into the forest. You know, this is a film about... Um, that there are people who, who, who hunt because they're, that's how they live off the land and there are people who do it for trophy, you know, the trophy hunters, like the guys who go after the dragon and that's very much criticised in the film. And the whole film feels like it's this community who are divided uh, amongst these kind of environmental sort of 
issues that all kind of comes together at the end in quite a beautiful kind of moment of reconciliation. This is a film about class and political reconciliation and healing families in small communities. I mean, this is... Which the first one was too. But but just the political climate right now in the US that's so politically divided, I think this film just has this really kind of amazing healing feel yeah. to it. No, it really it's really interesting to me how this film relates to the original because it does it's certainly it's a very different story. I mean, you mm. have a Pete and you have an Elliot, but it really does change a lot. I mean, you wouldn't call it a direct remake in any sense. Um, but it does pick up on these things, you know, there's cl- real class issues, this real sense of aggression and how do we work through that and how does this dinosaur fit into that? As uh, dinosaur, how does this dragon fit into that? Mm. It's yeah, it riffs in a really interesting way on the original and in a really beautiful way. Yeah, this film reminds me of when the, the term a Disney film actually had a yeah. concrete meaning. Yeah. I think that sense has been lost over time, particularly probably over the last two decades. There was a sense that the Disney film was like a genre unto itself, that there was the, the sense of it could have darkness and light. It had often, as we mentioned, it involves a, a moment of trauma. This love and embrace of the imagination and the possibilities of the imagination. One of the strongest moments of this film is this question about is the dragon real or not? And a, one of the, the younger girls in the film sort of said, so hang on, is Elliot real? Like this is real or is it, uh, you know, imagination? And he's like, no, this is real. And I like the way it, it doesn't kind of play sides with that. And and the socio-political theme. Again, that was a kind of key moment or element of those sort of Disney film genres in the yeah. 70s and yep. 80s. So I think there's part of that throwback and nostalgia, which is I know is getting quite broad in, in popular culture now, but it, it feels authentic, it feels quite real, and it feels that really genuine. That element, I think, is what does it. Yes. There is so this true. really kind of bespoke, almost kind of handicrafted, just gorgeous. There's something... well, it feels sincere. I mean, I've started yeah. using the expression retro-wank, which is the, I think there is this <laughs> tendency now to constantly mine genres and styles from the past and it's starting to wear me down where yeah. I think this film has a real authenticity uh, to it I think it, it wears its heart on its sleeve and yeah it, it's just a beautiful film visually and thematically as well um, I, th- I love the fact that they reveal the dragon almost instantly which is quite an interesting move they could have kept that a secret but I think because we've seen the trauma of the car crash it's important to then establish yeah. this kid has a friend and a guardian in the forest and they animate the dragon I'm, I haven't looked this up but it has to have been based on the dog because the way the dragon runs around, it's like a little puppy dog, yeah. and it's it's beautiful. Glenn Kenny compared him to Scooby Doo. I think something yeah. something between <laughs> Chewbacca and Scooby Doo. I think it's wetter. I think it's this was filmed in New was, Zealand, yeah, and absolutely. it was a wetter, and it's a beautiful dragon, yeah. like the. It, it has that cartoonish feel without feeling ridiculously cartoonish. Like it still has that element where it fits within the the logic and the reality yeah. of of the film, as opposed to being like a kind of cartoon, which I, I, which I really I, appreciated. I also I think um, a lot of this film for me had to do with I, Bryce Dallas Howard. I think was extraordinary, and I'm so fifty fifty on her. I think she can be amazing, and I think she can be terrible. But Robert Redford was oh, just God, just yes. his presence was so. There was something just so centering about having him there. Whenever I think of Robert Redford, I always think of Richard Aowade describing him as a man who looked like wheat. That is the perfect description of, of Robert Redford. But he just has such important presence. Um, gravitas, I think, is probably too strong, perhaps. But he just really grants this film such an important presence he, or something. When There's, he's on screen, you yeah, just have a just feeling of, beautiful. oh, everything's okay now. I, I'm loving Redford's later yeah, career work. I think he's too. doing great stuff. He's and the he storyteller. Like yeah, it's yeah. The, the narrational mm. element, the voiceover that we don't get throughout the film, but it really anchors it both at the beginning and the end. Yeah, one, this is uh, yeah easily one of my favourite films of the year. It's particularly gorgeous. Particularly in terms of family fair. That's a good note to leave Peach Dragon on, a film that we all very much loved. You're listening to the final moments of Plato's Cave.
Sully is on general lease through Roadshow Films. Blair Witch is on general lease through Roadshow Films. And Pete's Dragon is on general lease through the Walt Disney Company. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Caldwell, with Alexandra Helen Nicholas. And for the final time, Josh Nelson. Yeah, a little sad. I'll I'll keep my, my final thoughts very brief so Jason can jump in the studio and wipe up my tears. Um, Look, I've been saying farewell to a lot of friends and family over the last couple of weeks and this feels like part of my friends and family. So farewell to all our listeners, farewell to the people inside the studio and outside Cerise Howard, former um, co-host Tara Judah, people at Triple R like Dave Housh and Mick James who got us on with the podcast in the in the very early days and all my megahertz uh, co-hosts are, are from previous years may you tear those rock dogs apart <laughs> for all the future years I'll be I'll be thinking of you from the sidelines this has been a wonderful ride Josh, I'm going to miss you like crazy. Um, Josh, myself and Tara Judah were the three people who began this show, like, when was it, 2009? We started as a, a podcast? 30-odd wow. years ago. A hell of a long time. <laughs> I've known Josh for even longer. We, we talked about doing something like this for years. So this is a real end of, of an era. I'm going to miss you, my friend. You're a fantastic film commentator. You're a very funny person. You're a very warm presence. Uh, you're a key to what has made this show as great as it is. Bon voyage. I'm sure at some point in the future we will cross paths or cross a microphone again. We love you, Josh. Godspeed. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.